Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Of all the texts on our reading list, the one that I'm guessing the most people have already read is Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. Since it came out in March 2020, countless women have told me that I have to read this book. And I'm so glad that I finally did. And so glad I added it to the reading list because I often get listeners saying, okay, now we know how patriarchy developed. Now we understand the depth of the problem, but what do we actually do about it in our everyday lives? And that's what this book does really, really well in a very readable, relatable way, probably better than any other book on the reading list. It talks about what we can actually do in our minds, in our relationships, in our daily lives to deconstruct internalized patriarchy. And I'm so excited that I have the brilliant Lane Anderson here to discuss this book with me. Hi, Lane. Hi, Amy. It is so great to have you here. I'm super excited to be chatting with you. Lane Anderson and I met in Jerusalem when we were both studying abroad during college. And then we had English classes together after Jerusalem on campus back in the States. But we since lost touch. And I'm just so happy to be back in touch with you and reconnected and and finding out that we still have so much in common. So super excited to have you here. And I'm wondering if you could start us off by telling a little bit about yourself, where you're from, who you are, some of the things that make you you. Yeah, of course. So I'm really excited to be here. Um, Thank you for having me. So a little bit bit about me. I was raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, as the oldest of four daughters. And I moved to the Bay Area after college at BYU, where I got my first job as a magazine editor. And then I moved to New York City for graduate school, and I have just been in New York City ever since. I like can't seem to leave. <laughs> uh, so my whole career, I've moved between working as a full-time journalist and working in academia. Um, and right now, I'm a clinical associate professor at New York University, where I'm full-time faculty teaching writing. And I'm also a freelance journalist, and my work has appeared in places like NPR, Psychology Today, Outside Magazine, as well as the Salt Lake Tribune and Deseret News there in Utah. And I spent years writing hundreds of articles about poverty and social justice issues. And in the process, I noticed that a lot of things that impact women and girls and small children get underreported or not reported very well. And I started focusing on writing about those issues in particular. And then about three years ago, I had my own daughter. And those issues struck home even more for me, how systemic issues like healthcare and housing and lack of family supports that other mid to high income countries have, um, things like paid leave and subsidized childcare and preschool are making life in the US really hard for women and parents. So that kind of has become my passion. And I write a lot about that. I um, met a woman named Allison Lichter, who was formerly at the Wall Street Journal and WNYC, and now she's the director of the journalism and design program at the New School. Um, I met her at a journalism conference. And so we discovered that we're both passionate about that and also mad about a lot of these issues. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we started our own Substack newsletter earlier this year called Matriarchy Report, And we write about issues and unpack how the U.S. kind of got to this place where life is harder for women and families than it is in other countries. And we write about solutions to make it better. So 
Matriarchy Report is uh, kind of the project that we do together right now. And it's grown quite a bit since we started it. And we just got a grant from the Solutions Journalism Network to grow it some more. So that's exciting. Mm, awesome. So that's kind of like, yeah, thank you. So that's like kind of what I'm really interested in and what I write about and what my work is about. And last year during COVID, I actually moved back to Salt Lake City um, and rented a house there around the corner from my sister and close to my dad, which was kind of the silver lining of being displaced during COVID for our family. So I did actually move back to Utah for one year, which I didn't see coming, but we returned to our apartment in New York in June. So now I live in Manhattan again with my partner and my three-year-old daughter. And I guess I'm a bona fide New Yorker now because I've been here for over mm -hmm. 15 years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we just keep staying here. Um, and now it feels like home. Yeah. Why would you ever leave? It's such a magical city. I love that. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to have to visit you next time in New York. Now. Yes, please do. Yes, so exciting. Okay, the next question that I like to ask my reading partners is your thoughts on just the phrase breaking down patriarchy, what that means to you. Oh, man. I mean, I, I love this project because it's about reading essential texts, which as a writer and a professor who teaches writing, it's right up my alley. And it's also at my alley as a feminist, but I feel like patriarchy is just, it's such a big part of my life and my heritage. So I was raised in the Mormon LDS church like you, Amy, and I don't affiliate with the church anymore, but I was in it for 30 plus years. And a lot of my loved ones, friends and family are in the church or were raised or they were raised in it. And I don't think you can be raised Mormon, especially if you're female, without having patriarchy deeply color your whole life. I feel like I kind of was raised like in a patriarchy within a patriarchy. And I got married later than most Mormon women. I didn't get married young. I put it off as long as possible and finally got married when I was 32. But it wasn't a happy partnership and I got divorced a few years later. And that was a really scary time for me because I was in my mid to late 30s and I was single with no kids living and working and supporting myself in New York City. And that is not where I imagined what my life would be like when I was, you know, a little girl growing up in Salt Lake City. <laughs> it was a far cry from <laughs> sort of what I imagined and sort of like what is the life plan, you know, mm -hmm. that you're sort of given when you're a little girl and you're Mormon. And I had never known anyone really growing up who had a life like mine. And at first it felt like a really big crisis and a failure, but it ended up opening a space for me to re renegotiate everything in my life, including patriarchy. And I feel like after my divorce, which is about eight years ago, I started a new chapter of my life and have kind of become a different person in a good way. But that was the beginning of me feeling like church was a hard place for me to be and it didn't align with my values of gender equity or equity for people of color or equity for LGBTQ plus people. And it was a really painful process, but I had to come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't put up with these inequities in other areas of my life or other institutions that I'm involved in. So it didn't make sense for me to put up with it at church either. And at the time, I had also received a fellowship to write about sex trafficking as a journalist for a year. So I was really deep in research and reporting and traveling to Los Angeles and Mexico City to report these stories about women and 
and children who were trafficked or who were selling sex to survive. And I just couldn't stop thinking about how it overlapped with the history of the Mormon church and leaders like Joseph Smith and especially Brigham Young, who married dozens of women, including young girls, and Brigham Young especially living in broad daylight in this big house full of women who spent their whole lives under his roof and this extremely powerful man who had so much control and they had so little control over their lives. And it was chilling to me the way this felt familiar to some of the sex trafficking that I was reporting on. And my on my dad's side, my great, great, great grandmother was married to Orson Hyde, who people who are LDS know as one of the original 12 apostles. And she was one of his polygamous wives. So patriarchy is such a deep part of my heritage and my personal experience. And I think, I don't think I'll ever be done unpacking it. I think I'll just always Mm -hmm. be thinking about it and unpacking it. And I, I love your podcast for that. And while I was um, well, all this was happening after my divorce, I also met my partner, Christopher, who is from Trinidad and Tobago, and he is black. So falling in love with a black person made me rethink my relationship to white supremacy for the first time as well. Mm-hmm. And it was a real awakening for me. So I'm always thinking about intersectionality and patriarchy and its relationship to whiteness. And especially now that I have a black biracial daughter, it's kind of a journey I'll be on for the rest of my life, unpacking race and patriarchy and learning how to raise her and be a good parent to a black girl in America who will, you know, eventually be a black woman. So, um, yeah, patriarchy is something that I'm like never not thinking about. Hmm. Wow. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm so excited to have all of your, you know, your life experience inform your you know, the way you see this text and what you bring to the conversation. So thanks, Lane. That's awesome. Okay. So before we start talking about the book, let's just really quickly introduce the author. And I'll just say a little bit about Glennon Doyle. I remember actually discovering Glennon Doyle. I was thinking it was probably around 2009 and she had her Christian mom blog, which was called Momastery, like a monastery, but for moms. (laughs) And I remember reading some of her blog posts and I thought, wow, she's like a really profound, original thinker, super funny and a really gorgeous writer. And I've followed her career a little just kind of off and on as she's gone from that that Christian mom blogging world to now she's this huge cultural phenomenon and like a an influencer and thought leader. Um, But backing up, here's a little bit about her. She was born in 1976 in Burke, Virginia, and she was raised with one sister, Amanda. And she's written and spoken frequently about her struggles with bulimia, which started at age 10, and addiction to alcohol during her teens and 20s. She also has written a lot about how when she learned she was pregnant, She was living a lifestyle that wasn't healthy for her. She was drinking a ton, but when she learned she was pregnant, she she quit drinking cold turkey, and she's been sober ever since, which is awesome because that's so hard to do and I think really admirable. She married her baby's father, Craig Melton, and they had three children, Um, and this is after graduating from college and then working as a teacher. And then she started writing on the blog I mentioned, Momastery, for several years, and that just gained popularity for several years. And then she published her first book, Carry On Warrior, 
based on some of her most popular blog posts. And that book was published in 2013. Then she wrote Love Warrior in 2016. And then Untamed came out in 2020. And those books chronicle the struggles of her marriage to Craig Melton, among other things. And then in Untamed, she talks about falling in love with the soccer superstar, Abby Wambach, whom she then married. And she now has a podcast with Abby, her wife, and her sister, Amanda, called We Can Do Hard Things, which is apparently really incredible. I'm going to be honest, I haven't listened to it, but I see it on Instagram and see little clips, and it's always really funny and so smart. She has a great Instagram account. She's an Oprah-endorsed thought leader and activist who is changing the world, not only with her writing, but also with her charity, which is called Together Rising, which has raised over $20 million for women and children and families in crisis. So she's a very, very impressive woman. And I loved this book. I thought it was so great. I didn't read it for a while after people were recommending it. But when I did, I really loved it. I read it in a day and a half or something because I couldn't put it down. So Let's dive in. Lane, I think you have the first chapter. And like always, we'll just take turns highlighting parts that we thought were really salient and really important to us. So why don't we just dive right in with you, Lane? Yeah. So this first chapter, like you, I also, Amy, sort of resisted reading this book at first, even though everybody around me was loving it. And then when Mm -hmm. I finally picked it up, I still resisted it for the first few chapters. And then I just fell into it and was sad when it was over. (laughs) So when people I've, I've heard about it on several podcasts and such before I read it. And this first chapter is one that everybody kind of talks about because I think it's the central metaphor sort of for the book. So I think it's worth talking about it. So she, she opens the book with this, she's going to the zoo with her family And there's this tame cheetah named Tabitha. And you can kind of watch this little show um, where Tabitha has been trained to run after a pink bunny that's strapped to a Jeep. And Tabitha has been raised with a lab, like a Labrador. And so she thinks she's a lab and she'll do whatever the lab does. And so they, they do the first run with the lab and the lab chases the bunny and then she mentioned Lane that it's a stuffed animal bunny, so it's <laughs> not like cruel to animals. I'm picturing the poor rabbit like an actual rabbit. <laughs> very, very important distinction. No, no animals are harmed in this in this story. Um, yes, it's a pink stuffed animal bunny that's strapped <laughs> <laughs> to the jeep. And so the lab chases and you get to see the lab run. And then, of course, they do it much faster with the cheetah. So you get to see Tabitha, the cheetah, you know, open up to full speed and chase the bunny. And that's kind of the show. And afterwards, I'll, I'll read this part that happens next. So the zookeeper, after the show is over, picked up her megaphone and asked for questions. A young girl, maybe nine years old, raised her hand and asked, isn't Tabitha sad? Doesn't she miss the wild? And the zookeeper said, no, Tabitha was born here. She doesn't know any different. She's never even seen the wild. This is a good life for Tabitha. She's much safer here than she would be out in the wild. And then while the zookeeper kind of keeps on talking, Tish, Glennon Doyle's daughter, points to Tabitha and nudges her mom. And she writes there in that field away from the zookeeper's Tabitha posture had changed. Her head was high and she was stalking the periphery, tracing the boundaries of the fence created back and forth, back and forth, stopping, 
only to stare somewhere beyond the fence. It was like she was remembering something. She looked regal and a little scary. Tish whispered to me, Mommy. She turned wild again. I nodded to Tish and kept my eyes on Tabitha as she stalked. I wished I could ask her, what's happening inside you right now? I knew what she'd tell me. She'd say, something's off about my life. I feel restless and frustrated. I have this hunch that everything was supposed to be more beautiful than this. I imagined fenceless, wide-open savannas. I want to run and hunt and kill. I want to sleep under an ink-black, silent sky filled with stars. It's all so real I can taste it. Then she'd look back at the cage, the only home she's ever known. She'd look at the smiling zookeepers, the bored spectators, and her panting, bouncing, begging best friend in the lab. She'd sigh and say, I should be grateful. I have a good enough life here. It's crazy to long for what doesn't even exist. I'd say, Tabitha, you are not crazy. You are a goddamn cheetah. (laughs) And this is sort of the central metaphor for the book, which is she she goes on to extend this metaphor that this is what's happened to women, that women have become caged and by expectations, by patriarchy, by conditioning. And the whole book is about figuring how to get free or, as she says, wild. And I actually think what's interesting is the part about how to get over the sense that all we've been given isn't isn't right. We've been given a much smaller space than should be ours, but it's hard to break out of it when you've never known anything else. And this is the central challenge for women, she argues, you know, and one might say the central issue to breaking down patriarchy is to be willing to sort of break out of our cages and own the space that should be ours. Yeah, definitely. That I mean, just being reminded as you were reading that passage, like, I guess I should be grateful for all of this. Like I have this and and I specifically noticed the Labrador, like this friend who loves me and I love mm-hmm. this Labrador too. Mm-hmm. And like they give me food here and I like chasing the pink bunny and I get to run and like what's wrong with me for kind of stalking the periphery and and maybe, you know, having kind of a vague sense of what could be out mm-hmm. there. But if you've never known anything different, it's just it is really a great metaphor, I think. So so yeah, in a different chapter called Sparks, she describes the cages a little bit. She says the cages are, these are the feelings you're allowed to express. This is how a woman should act. This is the body you must strive for. These are the things you will believe. These are the people you can love. These are the people you should fear. This is the kind of life you're supposed to want. And she argues that this happened to her around 10 to 12 years old, I think she says. And she kind of changed into a different person who sort of started to succumb to these cages and conditioning. And she also says that this is basically what gave her bulimia, right? That Mm -hmm. she thinks trying to squeeze herself into these cages to these like very narrow ideas of what a woman should be is what led to her bulimia when she was young, still a child, mm-hmm. and also yep. eventually her alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like physically really did make her sick, mentally, psychologically, emotionally it made her sick. Right. Okay, one of the next things I wanted to share is from a chapter called Polar Bears. And this is a story of how Glennon Doyle's daughter Tish was – reading about global warming and about the polar bears whose habitats were sh- were changing and shrinking and how they were endangered. And 
her daughter Tish just could not get over it. She was just constant. She's just consumed by worry. And as the mother, she sometimes got a little annoyed, just like get over it. And finally, she kind of has this change of heart where she she looks at Tish and thinks, I'll just read what she says, quote, you are not crazy to be heartbroken over the polar bears. The rest of us are crazy not to be. And then she goes on and kind of a, a meditation on the role of people like Tish. She says, the opposite of sensitive is not brave. It's not brave to refuse to pay attention, to refuse to notice, to refuse to feel and know and imagine. The opposite of sensitive is insensitive, and that's no badge of honor. Tish senses. Even as the world tries to speed by her, she is slowly taking it in. Wait, stop. That thing you said about the polar bears. It made me feel something and wonder something. Can we stay there for a moment? I have feelings. I have questions. I am not ready to run outside to recess yet. In most cultures, folks like Tish are identified early, set apart as shamans, medicine people, poets, and clergy. They are considered eccentric, but critical to the survival of the group because they are able to hear things others don't hear and see things others don't see and feel things others don't feel. The culture depends on the sensitivity of a few because nothing can be healed if it's not sensed first. But our society is so hellbent on expansion, power, and efficiency at all costs that the folks like Tish, like me, are inconvenient. We slow the world down. We're on the bow of the Titanic, pointing, crying out, iceberg, iceberg, while everyone else is below deck, yelling back, we just want to keep dancing. It's easier to call us broken and dismiss us than to consider that we are responding appropriately to a broken world. That's the end of that quote. And I very much related to that. I'm sure you did too, Lane. To mm -hmm. Sometimes it is just, it's not fun to be the gadfly. It is not pleasant to be the person who's slowing things down. And we sometimes make people upset because people like traditions and people like the status quo and lots of people don't like change. And she brings up in this chapter also that Martin Luther King had a 30% approval rating in the United States when he was doing his work. People didn't like him, you know, yeah. like we have like this really, yeah. you know, in, in retrospect, we have heroized him, but Nobody likes a prophet in their own time. And Martin Luther King was a prophet. And people in this role are reviled and called ungrateful and worse. They're, yeah, they're only made heroes after the change happens. And then people forget about what a battle it was to change it and how they were the ones resisting it when it was tried to be changed. So, or after they're dead, right? That's when they build the statues to them. Right. So I, I really related to that chapter and thought it was really important. Yeah, I agree. I thought this was a really important story. And also, and not just for the people who are really outspoken like MLK per se, but just in general, I think the point that we're all crazy to not be heartbroken about the polar bears and we're all crazy to not be worried that the planet is dying on our watch <laughs> is, is a problem. It's kind of sick. And the the fact that most of us aren't worried about it is a sign of the sickness of the rest of us, not that there's something wrong with the people who are actually talking about it, right? And I, I think it is sort of indicative of 
how our culture has evolved to just try to ignore all that, like she says, right? Because it's all about power and efficiency and convenience. And also it's, you know, a lot of us don't feel like we have the power to change that kind of stuff anymore, but I think it's really worth examining. I thought this, um, she's really good at metaphors. And I thought this story really, this anecdote really kind of encapsulated that. So the next chapter that I think struck both of us is rules is the name of it. And there's this story, there's this hot yoga story, um, that she tells about her friend, Ashley. So she writes their friend, Ashley, went to a hot yoga class for the first time. And at the beginning, the instructor announced, we'll start soon. You're going to get very hot, but you can't leave this room. No matter how you begin to feel, stay strong. Don't leave. This is the work. The class got started and a few minutes in, the walls began to close in on Ashley. She felt lightheaded and sick. Each breath became harder and harder to come by. Twice her vision became spotty, then briefly went black. She looked at the door and felt desperate to run toward it. She spent 90 minutes terrified, close to hyperventilating, holding back tears, but she did not leave that room. The moment the instructor ended the class and opened the door, Ashley jumped off her mat and ran into the hallway. She kept her hand over her mouth until she found the bathroom. She threw the door open and vomited all over the sink, the wall, the floor. While she was on her hands and knees, wiping up her own puke with paper towels, she thought, what is wrong with me? Why did I stay and suffer? The door wasn't even locked. So she she returns to this line like the door wasn't even locked several times in the book. And it kind of refers to this idea that we <laughs> we don't even have to be forced to do things that we don't mm-hmm. want to do or sh- or know we maybe shouldn't do. We're conditioned to do them anyway, right? Nobody even has to lock the doors. You just teach people and in what she's arguing about as women in particular how to behave and you don't even have to lock the door, right? They can just be controlled through their conditioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you had an ex- like an experience like that in your life, Lane, that you can think of like the yoga class? Yeah. I think it's a, a great anecdote because I think most of us can think of several mm-hmm. times when we have felt like this. Women especially because you're afraid – you're afraid to rock the boat. And for women, there are consequences for rocking the boat, right? You want to be pleasant. You want to be likable. You don't want to make a scene. So two scenes come to mind for me. The first one is sitting in church and relief society in particular. And towards the end, when I was sort of deciding whether I was going to keep attending church or not, I used to choose a seat by the door so that I could leave when I needed to, because often I felt like I wasn't comfortable there. And so I'd sit by the door and sometimes I would literally rock in my chair. I'm sure people thought I was a weirdo. I was a weirdo. Or I would openly read my phone, which I knew was like bad manners, but it was sometimes the only way I could force myself to like sit there as long as possible. And I think it was especially hard for me because, you know, I was a single woman in relief society. I didn't feel like it was really a place where I belonged or it was really for me. And and I guess in terms of patriarchy, it felt like, you know, patriarchy within the church had sort of assigned women a certain role and I definitely didn't fit inside of it. So I felt pretty uncomfortable there a lot of the time. And I did feel like my body was willing me to leave. And it took me way too long to realize, (laughs) like, 
the whole thing, the whole thing is volunteer. Like I don't have to sit there, right? I don't even have to go. Nothing was keeping me there. It's not like it's my job. My livelihood didn't depend on it. My health insurance didn't depend on it. Nothing. I could just choose to leave. And I finally did. But it's very much one of those things where it's like the door's not even locked. But mm-hmm. I still just kept myself there even though I was uncomfortable. And I can also think of several, not several actually, just one or two dating situations where I felt like I was on a date with someone who made unwanted advances to me. And instead of just like leaving the date, you know, there's one like in a movie theater in particular I can think of. And this wasn't that long ago. You know, I was like in my 30s when this happened. And it, I was really uncomfortable and I should have just gotten up and left the movie theater but I didn't. Like the door wasn't even locked. Why didn't I just leave? And I think I've just been so conditioned to try to make everything pleasant and not make a scene and to try to salvage the situation that I, you know, I didn't, door didn't have to be locked. Do you, do you feel like you have had situations like that? Absolutely. Definitely. To just, and I agree with you, it's because we're so conditioned to want to make everybody else comfortable and yeah, to, to, you know, publicly go against what everybody else is doing is really uncomfortable. We're such social creatures and especially women are, I mean, that's kind of our task and our role. Okay. The next chapter that we wanted to talk about, but, and both of us are going to say, I think a little bit about this is knowing And this was one of my main takeaways from the book, actually. So Glennon Doyle talks about the period in her life where she had just found out that her husband had been cheating on her pretty constantly since they got married. And she says this, quote, I had just typed these words into my Google search window. What should I do if my husband is a cheater, but also an amazing dad? I stared at that question and thought, well, I have hit some sort of new rock bottom. I've just asked the internet to make the most important and personal decision of my life. Why do I trust everyone else on earth more than I trust myself? Where the hell is my self? And that's in all caps. When did I lose touch with her? So then she describes how, as she's looking at all of the search results, how every entry said something different about what to do if your husband's a cheater, but they're a good dad. And like, and she says, all these differing opinions meant that I quite literally could not please everyone. That was a relief. When a woman finally learns that pleasing the world is impossible, she becomes free to learn how to please herself. I wanted to make my own decision as a free woman from my soul, not my training. But the problem was I didn't know how. Okay. And so this concept is one of the reasons that I'm really glad that I finally did decide to read the book and feature the book on the podcast because most of the books that we've read have been really academic and we've spent a lot of time analyzing history. But like I said at the beginning, she offers some really concrete things that we can do. And so she she talks about this process or, or this practice that she does called sinking. And it's basically just meditation, but I'm going to read a little bit about it. She She talks about the phrase, be still and know, which of course comes from the book of Psalms in the Bible. 
But she stops and she says that basically you can know not only God, and she does still believe in God. She says Abby doesn't believe in God. She does. That's fine. <laughs> but she says you can know not only God, but just answers to your own life. And she, she describes how she sits in meditation in her own closet. She talks about how when she first started, it was awful. She says it's like an input junkie thrown into detox because there's nothing to do or think about. But she describes how she would get better at it. After each session, she would get a little better, just like an athlete that gets better at their sport or a gymnast that gets deeper into a stretch every time. She says, eventually I sank deep enough to find a new level inside me that I'd never known existed. This place is underneath, low, deep, quiet, still. There are no voices there, not even my own. All I can hear down there is my breath. Beneath the noise of the pounding, swirling surf is a place where all is quiet and clear. There in the deep, I could sense something circulating inside me. It was unknowing. I can know things at this level that I can't on the chaotic surface. Down there, when I pose a question about my life in words or abstract images, I sense a nudge. The nudge guides me towards the next precise thing. And then when I silently acknowledge the nudge, it fills me. The knowing feels like warm liquid gold filling my veins and solidifying just enough to make me feel steady, certain. What I learned, even though I'm afraid to say it, is that God lives in this deepness inside me. When I recognize God's presence and guidance, God celebrates by flooding me with warm liquid gold. I now take orders only from my own knowing. That's the end of that quote. And I have that in bold in my, <laughs> in my notes and like in my brain that is emblazoned as one of the things I got out of this book. I take orders only from my own knowing. Uh, it reminds me of the episode we did on the Gospel of Mary Magdalene where it's a total reframe where the goal is to become more fully human, to know ourselves, to bring forth what is within us and to trust the, the divine within us instead of looking outside ourselves for permission from other people. And it's just such a different, again, it's a mind shift from these patriarchal norms that we often learn in religion, which like you said, Lane, I loved how you described religion can be a patriarchy within a patriarchy. But everybody absorbs this to some extent, even in the secular world, because they teach us that we have to take orders from this small group of men in charge. And that hurts everybody. It warps mm -hmm. the character of the men who do get into those positions of power. And it hurts all the other men who are also within those systems. Most of all, it does hurt girls and women, though, mm -hmm. because we are trained to see authority and wisdom and power and the people who can give permission as residing outside ourselves and never within another woman, never within ourselves. I guess really quickly, I'll j I mean, listeners will remember, I think the, the big wake up calls for me where I was like, oh, I'm never doing this again. We're prop eight. And I talked about that on my, on our episode, you know, with Matthew where it took me a while to get there, but finally I did, where I was like, oh my gosh, I turned to something outside of myself in in direct violation, literally of my own conscience. And I, yeah, I really vowed to never do that again. And then my, our religion's temple ceremony was another thing where like your, like the yoga story too, 
that you just shared, Lane, where like I would be in there with my body screaming to get mm-hmm. out, just like I do not agree with this. And to and I just kept going back. I kept going back because I thought I had been taught that that was God's will. That was the right thing to do. And I would be sitting there just like, again, just violating my own deep knowing mm-hmm. and and ignoring my body's signals. And it would make me physically sick. And I did damage to my own soul mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by constantly violating my own knowing. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm never doing that again. Yes, Amy, thank you for saying that. I have heard the essay that you wrote about Prop 8, and I thought it was so vulnerable. And I think it perfectly illustrates this idea of losing yourself, which she talks about, and then sort of violating what it is that you want or what is your own, what she calls knowing or integrity. And I had a similar experience with the church's November policy when they stopped Mm. baptizing the children of same-sex couples and gay couples. And I just knew, I just knew that was it. I couldn't agree with it. I could not go along with it. It wasn't even a question. I went to church for the very last time to sort of Mm. say goodbye that Sunday. And that was it. I walked out and it was hard and sad and painful, but it also felt like I was very much in line with myself and my own values. And it would have, like you said, I like that you said it would have done damage to you to do otherwise. That's exactly how I felt. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do get to a breaking point where you're like, yeah, I can't, I can't do any more damage. Right. Cause I, I mean, mm-hmm. I just picture you rocking back and forth in church <laughs> and that does, it does do damage when you're like, Oh no, it's not. But it's, but then there is sometimes there is an event where you're like, and that was it. I won't do yeah. that to myself anymore. I can't, I, I, can't sign my name to this. Yeah. It just violates our integrity too much. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard moment, but a powerful moment, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to say a couple more things about this chapter really quickly before we move on. I'm thinking of a specific conversation I had with someone when I was talking about, you know, my integrity and being true to what I felt was right. And she said, well, how do you know that that's not just you know, you wanting to do the easy thing. Like it feels right to you because you're in distress, but how do you know that your own voice is like, is trustworthy? And so, and that's a really legitimate question to ask. And I think we all should constantly be asking ourselves that, right? But Glennon Doyle says that that deep knowing is not the same as just wanting to do something or not wanting to do something. Sometimes the the knowing tells you to do something you don't want to do. Sometimes it tells you to persist in something that you actually want to quit, or it tells you to forgive someone that inside you do not want to forgive that person. Or sometimes you're terrified to do something, you don't want to do it, and it says, no, you need to do that. And so you can feel a difference, I think, like once you get down to that deep, like, what will be the best for me long term and and that deep knowing it's not the same as just like deep in my soul i feel like i want to not write my final paper for this class or whatever or eat that pan of brownies um <laughs> the other thing is that what something that i've been reflecting on is just that each person's knowing is custom fit for where they are right then in their lives and so it looks different for each person i was I just saw on uh, Instagram, my friend Ashmay recently posted that 
she's she was seeing lots lots of posts on Instagram about how brave it is to stay in the church. And in her typical way, which is like really validating and gentle and loving, she said, you know, that might be true. It's also brave to leave because she did just leave the church. And I know you just talked about how you did leave the church lane and that took so much courage. When you when you're face when you're feeling so much pressure from family and friends and your whole universe, really, back to your ancestors that are like, no, don't leave. Mm-hmm. It takes so much courage to leave. And at the same time, I have reading partners on this, I have had reading partners on this podcast who are experiencing a lot of pressure to leave the church. But when they sink into their inner knowing, they feel that the answer is that they should stay. And that can be true of every religion, obviously, and for lots of different things other than religion, like staying in a marriage versus ending a marriage or staying in grad school or a certain job. And everyone's knowing when they sink down there, it looks different and it can change over time too. It can be like, what's best for me right now is to leave this thing or what's best for me right now is to stay for now because maybe there's more to learn still or other people that you need to impact and you don't know, but you feel like, nope, I need to stay for now. So I just feel like it's a waste of mental energy for us to judge each other and Probably our time could be better spent just figuring out how to tap into our own wisdom and our own truth and living our own authentic life rather than looking at someone else and saying, well, they're, you know, they're making the wrong choice in that situation. Like we would know better, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think this, I, this part in all caps where she is, where, where is myself? Like, how did I lose her? I think that really resonated with me. And I think it does for a lot of women and sort of sorting out what is your own knowing and what you've been conditioned to do is something that most women have to sort of like really wrestle with. I think you have to do a lot of work to figure out the one from the other. Right. And thank you for mentioning that it's hard to leave the church. It is hard. It's really hard. And people who do it usually have a lot to lose. But I think I actually really like what you said, Amy, about doing damage to yourself. I think this idea about doing damage to yourself is really useful because I think if I had to sort of define my own knowing, that's a big part of it. If I feel like I'm choosing to do something that is doing damage to myself or other people, that's, that's it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, Mm -hmm. it's, I, I, don't want to do damage to myself. I should not do damage to myself. And I certainly don't want to do it to other people. And I think that's useful to think about in terms of the self and knowing and figuring out what it is that you really want to do versus expectations and conditioning. Hmm. Definitely. So this chapter was actually a little bit triggering for me, to be honest, because I know exactly what Glennon Doyle's talking about. I think the most damaging part of being raised in the church for me was being taught to look elsewhere for answers instead of inside myself. And by that, I mean, usually looking to men for answers, either by praying to a male God to find out what he wanted me to do, or by turning to male leaders like bishops. And in the process, I learned to completely distrust myself and dismiss what I want. And in some ways, that's been one of the most freeing parts of leaving is not feeling like I have to do that and really trying to figure out 
what it is that I want. And I think I'll be trying to figure out how to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think well, I think that's true for a lot of us. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, that's that's the process. That's yeah. the process. And yeah. that's the process that we're hoping to shortcut for our kids, right? Is like, "Oh no, no." Yes. So, let's just skip right to the the integrity yeah. part and not outsourcing our own conscience and our own wisdom, right? Absolutely. So the next parts that we both wanted to talk about are chapters called Imagine and Let It Burn, and they are they're kind of linked in their content. One part that I loved, and I'll just share it quickly, but this concept of growth and learning, which requires being open to change and, and openness to being wrong. She says, quote, if we are truly alive, we are constantly losing who we just were, what we just built, what we just believed what we just knew to be true. I've started saying in my life something like, this is what feels right to me right now, or this is what makes sense to me right now, because I've learned by making mistakes that life is a process, and I've been wrong a lot of times. And so I have to say, too, this podcast, when I started, especially was really scary for that exact reason, because I knew my voice would be recorded and then posted on the Internet forever. And I thought, like, I mean, I'm at the beginning of this education journey, and inevitably I'm going to say some things that later I look back and like, why did you say that? Or why did you think that? How did you not know that yet? And I was really scared of that. But I decided to just embrace the journey. I thought, you know, if I wait until I know all the things, first of Mm -hmm. all, I never will. But if I wait until I know everything I will ever know, it'll (laughs) literally be my deathbed and then I will die. Like, and so it's, it's that or nothing. Like the choice is like learn and be open about learning and be humble about it or just keep your lips zipped and then you can't, you can't, you know, be vulnerable and you can't make connections with other people who are also in that same process. Anyway, that was scary to me, but I loved that she said that we have to be willing to be wrong and undo what we just built and what we just said and even what we just believed. Like our beliefs, need we need to be open to change. Yeah. Anyway, I love that. Yeah, that's great. And writing is the same way, by the way. I've published things that I wish I had not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I, but you know, I've grown since then. I've changed. My yep. views have evolved. And this is you know, a lot of women struggle with perfectionism too. And I think you really summed it up. You always want to wait to do things until you're like just right. And it never happens. Right. And that's what really holds you back. So in the pre the chapter previous to this, imagine she writes about how she was an alcoholic bulimic addict who got pregnant and then she reinvented herself and got sober and got a husband and three kids and a writing career. And then she goes on to describe how years later, She finds out her husband has been cheating on her, as you mentioned. And shortly after that, a woman she's never seen walks into a room and she instantly falls in love. And then she has to decide if she's going to reinvent herself again. And this is kind of the same idea of, you know, being willing to change. So she describes this process of what am I going to do? She's at this crossroads. Um, She says, I've got one husband, three kids, two dogs, a skyrocketing writing career based partly on my traditional family and Christianity. I'm at an event to launch a new book, the highly anticipated memoir about my marriage's redemption. At that event, a woman walks into the room and I fall madly in love with her in the same moment. 
my circumstances, my fear, my religion, my career, they all scream, no, not her. And yet something inside me whispered, yes, her. That something was my imagination. All evidence to the contrary, I can imagine myself as Abby's partner. I can imagine the kind of love where I was fully seen, known, and cherished. Swelling, pressing, insisting there is a life meant for you that's truer than the one you're living. But in order to have it, you have to forge it yourself. You will have to create on the outside what you are imagining on the inside. Only you can bring it forth, and it will cost you everything. So she goes on to connect this. And by the way, good luck reading this book and not falling in love with Abby Wambach. She's like (laughs) one of the best parts of the book, right? Yeah, Um, so great. And she goes on to connect this personal anecdote about being willing to burn everything down in your own life, even though it seems like you're entering an impossible void and the larger sort of systemic societal implications of that. She goes on to write about what she calls the quote, seen order of things versus the unseen order of things. And she says, the seen order of things where children are shot in their schools and violence reigns, and 1% of people hoard all that we have, but we know that there is a better, truer, wilder way. And she calls that the unseen order of things. That inside us, the vision for a world where all of our children are fed, and we don't kill each other, and mothers don't have to cross deserts with babies on their backs. It's what a lot of religions or traditions call heaven or shalom or nirvana. But it can be, she says, if we refuse to wait and die, and instead, quote, give birth to it here and now, and rework the world after our imaginations. She says we must reclaim our place as co-creators of the world, and like Tabitha, the cheetah, unleash ourselves to that wilder and truer world. Where we that we sense is out there, even if we can only imagine it. And on first blush, I felt like some of this seems kind of obvious, but I actually think that women, and especially white Christian women who make up a lot of her audience, can have a hard time breaking out of some of the systems that hold them back and that oppress other people because they're afraid of what it will cost them. And it does sometimes cost them. And in many ways, this allows a lot of sick and oppressive things to persist, you know, sort of on our silence or our compliance. And I think she's right that if we as women were willing to burn things down and take on risk, we could actually change lives and change society. But patriarchy and white supremacy have built in so many reasons that we think the cost is too high or that we've just been conditioned not to. I mean, I will say, you know, she's a famous wealthy writer who married a world famous soccer star. <laughs> so like in some ways I'm like, okay, Glennon Doyle, but you're going to be okay. It, it is a huge, I mean, it is a huge yeah. decision that she makes. I don't mean yeah, to downplay yeah. it, but also because this line, it will cost you everything. You know, you can bring it forth, but it will cost you everything. I can mm-hmm. totally see how she felt that way. And also she had a lot to lose. And she made the very brave choice to go ahead with it anyway. And I think a lot of us have moments like this in our lives, right? Where we can like choose to burn something down and it's going to be really hard or we might lose relationships over it or we can not. And that's what's hard is the relationships, right? Because the thing that where it's like, it's going to cost you everything. She was worried about her kids, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, she's going to get divorced Mm -hmm. from their dad. That's a, that's a big deal. And when you, you know, when you think about, leaving the church, I think too, like some of the hardest 
the hardest things about that are like, I'm going to break my parents' heart and I love my parents. I'm going to, right? Like that's usually, those are the biggest cost things is like, I might hurt somebody I love. So right. oh, it's, it's rough. It's yeah, really rough. It is. She, of course, goes on to write about how she thinks it saved her kids in many ways, right? Because right. it modeled for them being brave and she wouldn't want her kids to live this life where they feel trapped. (laughs) Like she wants her kids to be able to burn down what's not working for them. But yes, it's not, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, especially, especially the relationships piece. So I wanted to read this part from let it burn, which is this same chapter where she kind of talks about how important it is to be willing to burn, you know, burn things down and sort of the impacts of that. So she writes, when we let ourselves feel our inner self transforms, when we act upon our knowing and imagination, our outer world transforms. Living from the worlds within us will change our outer worlds. Here's the rub. Destruction is essential to construction. If we want to build the new, we must be willing to let the old burn. We must be committed to holding on to nothing but the truth. We must decide that if the truth inside us can burn a belief, a family structure, a business, a religion, an industry, it should have become ashes yesterday. If we feel, know, and imagine our lives, families, and world become truer versions of themselves eventually. But at first, it's very scary (laughs) because once we feel, know, and dare to imagine more for ourselves, we cannot unfeel unknow or unimagined. There's no going back. We are launched into the abyss, the space between the not true enough life we're living and the truer one that exists only inside us. So we say, maybe it's safer to just stay here. Even if it's not true enough, maybe it's good enough. But good enough is what makes people drink too much and snark too much and become bitter and sick and live in quiet desperation until they lie on their deathbed and wonder what kind of life, relationship, family, world might I have created if I'd been braver? And I think I think this kind of speaks to what you were talking about earlier, Amy, in terms of the cost of not. You know, there's the cost of burning the thing down, and then there's the cost of not burning the thing down, <laughs> which she argues is a high cost, right? So she goes on to say that, you know, she wants a world full of women who are what she calls full of themselves, Right. Um, who are really willing to act on their knowing and be bold and offend people if necessary. Um, and she calls this like our memos, right? We got the memo that we need to please everyone and be, and be pleasing and be quiet and not rock the boat. And she says, no, you know, let it burn. Mm-hmm. I think what I like about this part is she makes the leap from the personal, you know, what it costs us personally to um, not burn things down. But I really like when writers make the leap to the larger systemic issues, you know, how if Mm -hmm. this is also true of not being willing to rock the boat or speak up or sort of speak our knowing, as she calls it. She says, like, you know, we do not need more selfless women what we need right now is more women who have detoxed themselves to be complete, completely removed from the world's expectations. <laughs> and she means that not in terms of like, because it's good for you, but because that's what would actually change society. And I, 
I mean, I think about this for myself a lot too. Like, what am I brave enough to do and what am I not brave enough to do? But I do, I feel like um, I can share a personal example of wishing, you know, that people around me sometimes (laughs) Mm -hmm. were willing to burn things down. So um, during the 2020 election, during the last election we had, I had a hard time because I felt like a lot of the women around me, especially in Utah, where I was living at the time, did not like Trump, but they were not willing to be outspoken about it because they didn't want to offend anyone or rock the boat. And Mm -hmm. a woman who I admire wrote a personal essay about how whoever you voted for, you made a good choice, you know, and I respect you. And it got Mm -hmm. passed around in my circle of friends uh, uh, online quite a bit. And, you know, meanwhile, my husband and I <laughs> had been donating money, making phone calls, texting, like things I've never done, right? Mm. Because we were desperate for my Black daughter to not have to grow up with someone like that in the White House and hear the dehumanizing things that he said repeated back to her at the playground. And whoever you choose, it was a good choice was absolutely not how I felt. Like it very much, it felt like it was very high stakes for my family. And when I reached out, I I actually reached out to this woman because I I respect her a lot and expressed this to her, kind of expressed where I was coming from. And she could not agree fast enough. She loathed Mm -hmm. Trump. She agreed he was racist and unfed. And she rushed to assure me of that. But I had to gently point out to her that that's not what her essay said. And then it was really interesting because she kind of went through this whole agonizing process. This is happening over, you know, chat where she was like, oh, should I take the essay down? Oh, my gosh. What if my other friend who was black sees this? I don't want her to be offended. And then she was like, what if I just rewrote it like this? Or what if I rewrote it like this? And she starts like sending me little edits. And they all the changes she made kind of tried to equivocate, but they didn't really change what she was saying. And then she was like, well, I'm in the young women and I don't want to offend them or their parents or the people in my ward. And I kind of watched her go through this whole process of cognitive dissonance and kind of trying to please everyone and not wanting to offend anyone. And like, I I just wanted to be like, just burn it down. Like, just take a stand. Just say what you actually think. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, be willing to say what you actually think and put it out there. And I think that would really mean something to the young women who you serve. And I think it would really mean something to your community if you stood in your truth like that and took a stand and like, just let the chips fall where they may. But she just couldn't do it. And I get that because I've had those moments too, Amy, where it's hard to be brave. But I think we really could change our communities. And I think we could change our relationships for the better in a lot of ways if we were willing to actually do this. Mm. So the next chapter that I really liked is called Eyes. And this one I thought had a couple short quotes that I really liked about mothers and martyrdom, which is kind of connected to the previous, but a little bit different. So she writes, mothers have martyred themselves in their children's names since the beginning of time. We have lived as if she who disappears the most loves the most. We have been conditioned to prove our love by slowly ceasing to exist. What a terrible burden for our children to bear, to know that they are the reason their mother stopped living. What a terrible burden for our daughters to bear, to know that if they choose to become mothers, this will be their fate too. 
Because if we show them that being a martyr is the highest form of love, that is what they will become. And then she goes on to say, what if a responsible mother is not one who shows her children how to slowly die, but how to stay wildly alive until the day she dies? What if the call of motherhood is not to be a martyr, but to be a model? Hmm. Yeah, I really, I, yes. this felt very freeing to me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I felt like it could sort of redefine motherhood in a way that could kind of give all of us a breath of fresh air. And I feel like she mm-hmm. kind of says things that a lot of us feel, but we don't really say out loud. And mm-hmm. this really resonated with me because I feel like I spent most of my 20s trying to avoid getting married in a culture that mm. only wanted me to get married. And it was this huge conflict for me and like a huge waste of my time. Like I I got engaged a couple times and broke it off and I really hurt people. But this conundrum that she's talking about of sensing that my life would be over, you know, once I got married and had kids, I just couldn't shake it. And I wish that I could just go back to my younger self and be like, hey, look, you don't want to get married. It's okay. Just study and go to school and hang out with your girlfriends because that's what you want to do. And I, you know, in the culture I grew up in, up in the, every boy I would date, you know, if you're raised LDS, you know how this is. Like you don't date for that long and then they're like, okay, so when are you going to get married? And so it always reached this crisis. And so I found this like very liberating, this idea of what she says here, the reframing, you know, of sort of what motherhood could be. Because this, the way that she describes it is very much how I sort of experienced it or thought of it. And it really put me off the idea of getting married. Like even now I'm married to my partner, but I only went through with it once we decided decided to start a family because I was like, I don't know about getting married again. I just don't know about that. <laughs> and mm. I think in, patri- in patriarchal cultures, you know, it's, we're told that it's the thing that gives us worth, but it also feels like it's the thing that can sort of like end our lives for ourselves. And that paradox for me was very paralyzing. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. Well, and it was, I mean, that's why it's been so interesting to me to do this historical project where I'm like, yeah, under the laws of coverture, like a woman's, (laughs) a woman really did get erased in terms Mm. of the law and property and like all kinds of things. So that the residue of that is still here. Like it doesn't get erased that fast. We lose a, a lot of times our last name and we there's so much that that we lose. I just wasn't aware that that was going to happen. So I think it's really awesome that you were aware and could be more deliberate about it, to be honest. I had no idea. <laughs> I think I, I don't think I executed it very well. You could ask some of my exes. <laughs> but, you know. We're learning as we go. We learn as we go. And in my own way, I guess I did what I wanted, you know, speaking to the previous chapters. I just, I don't think I did it very gracefully. Yeah, we're all doing our best. So this part was really great too, because it was kind of what we alluded to before, where, you know, she's really agonizing about this choice of whether to end her marriage to her children's father, right? and um, make this huge shift for them. And that's what you were talking about, right? Was where like, she's like, oh, what about if being a responsible mother is modeling for my kids that I'm not just going to mar And that would have been a martyrdom for her to stay with this husband that was cheating on her that didn't show her love in the way she needed. And she's like, yeah, so she chose to stay alive and 
and live true to herself, which she, that's what she wanted for her kids. So I just have to throw it out too. Like I feel nervous advocating like, and thus, and that was the right choice. I just want to qualify like her inner knowing said that was the right choice for her right then. I just am thinking like, what if there's some woman listening to this episode and like, oh, then that must be the right choice, like with a capital T-H-E, the right choice. No, the point is figure out what is right for us, like deeply, deeply right and will um, lead us, you know, to a life of joy and authenticity and Mm -hmm. then do what that tells you no matter what that is. It'll look different for different people. Mm -hmm. And that to me ties into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is just a really short excerpt from the chapter on talks where, I mean, to this issue of like, you have to do what is true to yourself, whatever that means, even if it means disappointing people, even if it means disappointing people you love. So this is a conversation between Glennon and her daughter, Tish. And Tish is saying how, her brother, Chase, so Glennon's son, Chase, was talking to Tish about joining this club at middle school. So Tish says, Chase wants me to join the same club he joined in middle school. I don't want to. Me. So don't. Tish. But I don't want to disappoint him. Me. Listen, if every time you're given a choice between disappointing someone else and disappointing yourself, your duty is to disappoint that someone else. Your job throughout your entire life is to disappoint as many people as it takes to avoid disappointing yourself. Tish says, even you? And Glennon Doyle says, especially me. Uh, it's I such a good quote. So good, right? <laughs> yeah, it's even so as important. you read it, I was like, this is the thing I want to like print out and stick on my mirror, right? Yeah. Yeah. Every time you're given a choice between disappointing someone else and disappointing yourself, your duty is to disappoint that someone else. Right. It's so Mm -hmm. good. I think for women, especially, it just feels so good to have permission to be like, disappoint everyone else and do not disappoint yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's integrity. And for her to be, it's such a good mom moment mm-hmm. for her to to recognize like that the person that we are most scared of disappointing mm-hmm. is usually mm-hmm. our parents and so for her to be to to free her daughter from that and say like yes i expect that you will disappoint me especially me because that will be the hardest one to disappoint uh, what a gift she's giving her daughter you're totally right so yeah i love great. that one so the next one this is for me kind of one of the big takeaways, Amy, this like very much resonated with me and my own passions and interests. And this chapter is called Cream Cheeses. And she (laughs) tells a story about how it's her son, I think it is, is a student athlete. And it's her turn to bring the snacks to the student athletes. And apparently, there's like a whole spread of bagels that gets brought and they kind of take turns doing it. So When it's her turn to bring the bagels, she says, the night before I was to deliver the goods, I received another email from the mother of one of the other athletes. She had a concern she wanted to share with me. She was worried that the other parents had not been providing sufficient cream cheese choices for the children. For example, last Friday, there had been only two options and several of the children hadn't liked either one of them and, and had been forced to eat their bagels cream cheese list. She had a solution. 
there's a bagel store close to the school that makes five different flavors of cream cheese. Might you be able to provide all of them? All of them. <laughs> five flavors of cream cheese. Five flavors of cream cheese is not how to make a child feel loved. Five flavors of cream cheese is how to make a child an asshole. <laughs> and yet, I am a cream cheese parent. All of my friends are cream cheese parents. Cream cheese parenting is the result of following your memo. Successful parenting is giving your children the best of everything. We are cream cheese parents because we haven't stopped to ask, does having the best of everything make the best people? What if we revised our memo? What if we decided that successful parenting includes working to make sure that all kids have enough, not just the particular kids assigned to us? What if we used our mothering love less like a laser, burning holes into the children assigned to us, and more like the sun, making sure all kids are warm? I just loved that chapter. I mean, it's a funny story, but has such a good, it has such a good point, and she's really good at doing this you know, using an anecdote to really make a bigger point. And this really resonated with me and some of my own passions and things that I write about because this is similar to the awakening that I had that led to me starting my own journalism project um, and newsletter matriarchy report because five or six years ago, before I had a child of my own, I was writing full-time about poverty and social justice like I spoke about before. And I was just blown away by what I found and what I learned, how systemic, how much systemic injustice there is in the U.S. and how our programs for families, especially women and young children, are just way below international norms and how much poverty there is and how much child poverty there is in the U.S. And it's the richest country in the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's just, when I finally had my own kid, it just brought it home to me even more how much um, families are really, a lot of families really struggle in the U.S. And it makes me angry for me um, because even though we, I feel like our family has a lot and plenty of privilege, it's um, a struggle to shoulder the burden and expense of raising kids in the U.S. Um, and then I think about all the people who don't have what we have. And I, I just remember so clearly one of the things this image that has kind of haunted me, Amy, after I had my baby was going to the store here in New York City. And, you know, I was always in the baby aisle buying baby stuff. And more often than not, the formula, the baby formula is behind glass and it's locked in New York City. And I, that image just it breaks my heart still to think about it, that we live in a country where people are desperate enough to steal baby formula. Like how is it that people in the richest country in the world don't have enough food for their babies? Like I mm. wanted to leave a post-it note and maybe I should have that was like, hi, if you are here because you need this formula, here is my phone number. Call me. I will help you. Like we will yeah. get you the formula. But I just thought this mm. – she does – such a good job, I thought, in this metaphor of like just kind of touching on one of the things that really matters to me, which is I just think that, you know, I'm often wary of moms as a solution for social justice problems, even though I want them 
to be a big part of the solution. And I think she puts a finger, she puts her finger on it here, why often they are not. And it's because part of our conditioning is to compete, to get our kids the best at all costs. And we are within a system that is many ways influenced by patriarchy that makes us compete with each other, especially for our kids, you know. We have this messed up system where our schools are funded by the local tax base. And because of that, there's only a few good schools. The schools that need the money the most get the least. And we all compete <laughs> for those mm-hmm. few kids. You know, it's just and it just creates this whole scarcity mindset that I think the cream cheeses story really kind of exemplifies. Um, and I like this idea of sort of like mothers especially being the son, you know, who could sort of Mm -hmm. like look out for all the kids instead of Mm -hmm. being, as she says, so laser focused on our own that we almost like burn holes in them. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, for sure. I remember actually Simone de Beauvoir talking about that in the second sex, like mothers, especially because her critique is like mothers that don't do anything else because they're taught they shouldn't or can't or whatever. And then their maternal focus just has nowhere else to go so it does like Mm -hmm. get focused like a laser and it's not even healthy for the kids and like the part that you raise like that's how to make your kid an asshole is to is to you know provide every flavor of cream cheese they could ever want right and so it doesn't do anybody good to do that It, it harms the kids who are so who grow up then grow up entitled and then it leaves other kids with no cream cheese or even a bagel to put it on right Right. so yep absolutely It's a great part to highlight. Okay, another part that I thought was really important and I'll talk about just briefly, but it's the chapter Islands. And this is another one that I read it and Eric happened to be sitting by me as I read it and I passed it over and said, read this. It it really made an impact for me. Um, and, And this is the part where she talks about the difficulty of feeling judged by her parents when she got divorced and, and married Abby. And she says, Quote, it's not the cruel criticism from those who hate us that scares us away from our knowing. It's the quiet concern of those who love us. End quote. And her her parents kept saying things on the phone that weren't mean or anything, but it just showed that they were really worried about her choice and it showed disapproval. And she was deciding whether to let them come over to her house, right? And visit her new family, herself and her spouse and her kids. And so she comes up with this metaphor that her family has an island and they they are the only ones who live on that island and they're happy and safe and they're dancing on the island. And the, you know, the island is in a, a body of water, or has a moat around it or something. And, and she's very, very careful about who she lowers the drawbridge for to let onto the island. And so she comes up with a list of very specific behaviors that would qualify a person to be able to come onto the island. So it's essentially just setting boundaries, but it's a really great metaphor for it that really struck uh, really struck me as being really, really useful. And she said, you know, she's very kind and loving. And she told her parents, like, when you can do these things that don't communicate that, like, there's something wrong with us to my children, then you are invited onto the island. And she says, quote, I decided to please myself instead of my parents. I decided to become responsible for my own life, my own joy, my own family. And I decided to do it with love. That is when I became an adult. And that really struck me 
And then she later talks specifically about kind of an application of our children specifically and not allowing people onto our island who might harm our children. And I thought that this was really especially applicable for parents of LGBTQ children. And she says, quote, a woman becomes a responsible parent when she stops being an obedient daughter, Mm -hmm. when she finally understands, right? (laughs) I totally related to that too. When she finally understands that she is creating something different from what her parents created, you are being required to choose between remaining an obedient daughter and becoming a responsible mother. Choose mother. Your parents had their chance to build their island. Your turn. Um, I thought that was really powerful. And I know there are, you know, you and you and I, Lane, a little bit have talked about your daughter, not in a sense of like LGBTQ issues, but you have a black daughter. And and I don't know if you have anything that you wanted to say about that, but that protectiveness of like who gets to come into mm-hmm. your home and that mm-hmm. feeling of like standing by the drawbridge for your child. Was there anything that you wanted to say about that? Um, you don't have to. I love, I mean, I love, I loved all the parts that you read from this. I, um, I will say it is very clarifying having a black child in my life. (laughs) It's very clarifying (laughs) for me in terms of, yes, the people that we sort of allow in our space and, um, the kinds of relationships that I'll have. I mean, we live in this like really politically divided world, but if, yes, if there's any hint of someone who is racist or supports racism or even supports racist policies, it's a hard no, you know? Mm-hmm. Nope, no, not in the inner circle. And um, I, <laughs> I, my child's very cute. Everybody thinks her child's very cute. I think my child's very cute. Um, she's a very <laughs> cute three-year-old, and I post a billion pictures of her on Instagram. And um, it is interesting because I will have a lot of people who will like love, you know, all these likes. I post a picture of my daughter. She's so cute, so cute. Lots of likes. And then I also post a lot of like social justice stuff, especially for, you know, Black Lives Matter. And then they drop off. And mm. don't think I don't notice. Don't think that I don't mm. notice who the people are <laughs> who are like, oh, cute black baby, uh, but will not support Black Lives Matter. Um, and those people are not in the inner circle. They're not. You know, they may not know it, but they're not. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I I love this. I thought this was awesome advice. This is another one that's like put on your mirror, but I also think it's a a wonderful reminder that we owe ourselves and our children more than we owe our parents and more than we owe anybody else. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. I love the, the part where she just says too, like your parents had their chance to build their island and it's your, your turn to do that as, as a parent. That's right. true for every new generation, which is really neat again for to think back to Glenn and saying, and it will be your turn someday. And if you need to disappoint me, that's right. okay too. I mean, yeah. just, yeah, allowing that to happen. That's, that's awesome. So another section that I think both of us really responded to is decals. And this is where um, she writes about she joined this church and it had all these great family programs and she was really into it. And she writes, then one Sunday, the preacher started discussing the sins of homosexuality and abortion as if they were the pillars upon which this church was built. And he, she goes to talk to him about it and says, you know, this doesn't, this isn't what Jesus taught. Like Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality and abortion. Like this, 
isn't really what my, you know, Christian beliefs are based on. Why is this what our church has become about? And she goes to talk to him about that. And he says to her, after many circular arguments, he looked at me, sighed and smiled. He said, you are a smart woman. What you say makes sense. They are the ways of the world, but God's ways are not our ways. You must not lean on your own understanding. You seem to have a good heart, but the heart is fickle. Faith is about trusting. And then she puts in italics, do not think, do not feel, do not know, mistrust your own heart and mind and trust us. That is faith. That is what this pastor was telling her. And then she says, everybody owes it to herself, to her people, to the world, to re-examine what she's been taught to believe, especially if she's going to choose beliefs that condemn others. She has to ask herself questions like, who benefits from me believing this? After the preacher told me to quit thinking, I began researching. And then she goes on to find out, she does her own research and finds out that no, like, these issues that have been made into religious issues at her church, like abortion and LGBTQ plus issues, were all political issues. They were all leveraged by politicians beginning about 40 years ago. Before that, most churches and Christians didn't care anything about it. And it was all done to create a voting block out of Christian evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know, this has nothing to do with Jesus. This just has to do with politics. And she says... All the devil has to do to win is to convince you that he's God. And I thought it was so, I thought it was so telling that abortion and LGBTQ plus rights are the issues that were chosen by the religious right to create these political divisions because, you know, as we're thinking about patriarchy, these are issues that directly reinforce straight male dominance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also, I think the line where she says, you know, we have to really think carefully about what we've been taught to believe, especially if it's going to condemn others. I think that's another one of those measures kind of like, you know, are you damaging yourself and are you damaging others? That's kind of Mm -hmm. a good sort of yardstick, right? To measure, Mm -hmm. to measure yourself by. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, this hit home for me. Um, Not surprisingly, I mean, I'm thinking about Prop 8 a lot. And yeah, I wanted to to bring out another quote from that same part of the chapter where she says again about this pastor where she says he wanted me to believe that trusting him was trusting God. My heart and mind were my connections to God. If I shut those down, I'd be trusting the men who led this church instead of trusting God. I'd be relying on their understanding. So she says, quote, when hate or division is being spread in our religious institutions, we have three choices. One, remain quiet, which means we agree. Choice number two is to loudly challenge power and work like hell to make change. Or three, take our families and leave. But there is no more silently disagreeing while poison is being pumped from pulpits and seeping beneath our children's skin. So many parents have come to me and said, my kid just told me she's gay. We've been sitting in this church for a decade. How must she have felt hearing what our leaders thought of her and assuming her mother agreed? How do I undo what she heard there? 
How do I convince her that I never really agreed with any of it and that she's perfect just the way she is? And that's the end of the quote. And I would say the answer is you can't. Mm. You can't. I mean, you can work really hard to undo the damage. You can work on healing the relationship. But I have a lot of friends um, who, I mean, it's not just the people from the pulpit who have been spewing this stuff. It's they themselves. And then, yes, mm. then they do have a gay child. And and the parents, well, I mean, and sometimes it's really awful. And the parents don't try to, you know, walk back the stuff they've said. And that's a whole different thing. But when there are parents who are like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. The kid is like, I know exactly what you think about mm-hmm. me. You've been saying it my whole life. I've heard you. And it's like the kid is terrified to come out because every time the parent or the friends or the Sunday school teachers or whatever talk about it, there's a kid who like undercover is in there like, you don't know you're talking Mm -hmm. about me right now, right? Mm -hmm. I saw um, Glennon and Abby talk about this on on an excerpt of their podcast on Instagram and Abby got, Abby Wambach got teary, like really choked up talking about the internalized homophobia that she still carries from all those Sundays Mm -hmm. sitting there absorbing it in church. And so they pointed out on that episode, you never know whether your child or again, like a kid in your Sunday school class or somebody in your youth group is gay and they hear everything you say. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as our culture gets less heteronormative and gets more aware, like, oh, these kids are going to grow up and a percentage of them will, will be queer. Right. I mean, hopefully it will change. It is changing a little bit. Thank goodness. But that was a really important one to me. Yeah. I'm glad you read that. It is a really powerful passage. And to your question about like, you know, am I careful about the spaces that my child is in because she's black? I mean, yes, I have to make different choices. And to be honest, this passage is kind of why, you know, I have a lot of friends who really wrestle with whether they're going to take their kids to church or whether they're going to keep taking their kids to church. And honestly, as soon as I had a black child, it wasn't even a question. Like I felt Mm. like between the sexism and the sort of implicit and explicit racism at church, you know, the, all of the good people in the Book of Mormon are the white people and they're white and delightsome and all the (laughs) bad people are brown people and dark people. And I definitely heard a lot of racism in my church culture as a kid. And I just know it would be toxic for her. There's no way. I wouldn't even walk through the door with her. Um, And I don't want to absorb a smidgen of homophobia either. Um, I just think, I think the way that she puts it is something like the God stuff gets written in your heart in a way that's hard as hell to buff out. And I think it's a really important point to make that the things that our children absorb in church carry more weight, right, than some other places. Mm -hmm. And they, like you said, Amy, they hear everything you say, and then it's really hard to walk it back. Yeah. So along those lines, should we do racist? Yeah, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, so this chapter, it's a little bit of a weird chapter in that it kind of has a different feel, I thought, than the others. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. it's because she's so assured of herself in the other chapters and in this one she's not but that's also kind of what's great about it is it's kind of vulnerable yeah. yeah so in this chapter she describes an incident where she got called a racist and she gets grilled she gets grilled on the internet because this is after George Floyd's murder and she you know she wants to help and so she puts together a webinar on anti-racism 
and she's going to put it on with another white woman. And she gets accused of taking up space and profits that should go to the black people who've been doing this work for a long time. And so she kind of gets dragged on the internet over this. And so the whole chapter is kind of a long reflection on that whole experience. And she says a couple things in this chapter that I think are worth repeating. So one of them is she says, in America, there are three kinds of people, those poisoned by racism and actively choosing to spread it, those poisoned by racism and actively trying to detox, and those poisoned by racism who deny its very existence inside them. And this reminds me of something that Jasmine Bradshaw, who runs First Name Basis, which is like my favorite anti-racism podcast, and um, she's actually also LDS. It's an amazing podcast, anti-racism podcast. And one of the things that she says that sticks with me a lot is all you have to do to perpetuate racism is nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Mm -hmm. All you have to do to make sure that your kids absorb racist ideas is Nothing, because systemic racism is all around us, and it's baked into all our systems, and all we have to do to support racism is remain passive and let it continue to fester. Um, And I like that she pointed out, you know, all of us are poisoned by racism. Like, we are. It's okay. Accept it. And then it's just what we choose to do with that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And she, even though she made a misstep – she still chooses to be someone who's actively trying to detox rather than someone who just denies its existence, right, and is passive about it. The other mm-hmm. sort of comparison that I thought she made that was really useful in this chapter is she writes, no one is terrified to admit that she has internalized misogyny because there is no morality attached to the admission. No one decides that being affected by misogyny makes her a bad person. But then when I bring up racism, the same women say, but I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I was raised better than that. And, you know, I I got the idea, Amy, that this book is very much kind of like by white women in many ways for white women. Like there's no mention of like, and I have these black friends, you know, like Oprah's the only really black or NMLK, you know, there's a little, (laughs) there's mentions here. Um, mm-hmm. And in a way, like, it's not an intersectional book, really, in any way. Um, but I think that's kind of what's powerful about it in a way is that she's able, I think, to kind of speak to white women in a way that feels maybe comfortable to them um, and mm-hmm. kind of meet them where they are. Like, if I could choose just one thing for other white people to understand, I think it would be this, what she says here, that we're all racist. Like, we have all absorbed racism. And it is okay to say that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, it's the only way forward. It's the people who deny that they are racist or have any racist ideas that scare me. So I am the mother of a Black child, and I am racist. I have racist ideas inside me and that I've inherited And that's hard to live with. It's a lot. But by acknowledging that I have them is the only way that I can be a good mother to her, right? It's the only way Mm. that I can check myself, check my own prejudices, be conscious of the way that I talk to her and treat her and the way that I act towards other people that she observes. And I just wish that more white people could be comfortable with admitting that they are racist. Like I think 
not in a way that they would ever harm a black person, but you know, we commit microaggressions all the time. I have a list of cringy microaggressions that I have made over the years in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think if all of us could start from that place where she is in this chapter, that's like, I know I've absorbed racism and I've made mistakes and still I'm choosing to detox and try to do better. I just think mm-hmm. that would, I think it's a really great call in for white women right now. And I wish that more of us could sort of join her in that space. Hmm. I totally agree. And I'm really glad you brought it up, Lane. I have to say, um, Sometimes I will listen back to episodes that I recorded, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, where at first I was kind of paralyzed by like, oh, I don't want to make a mistake in front of all these people. But I just I listened to our episode on the book, This Bridge Called My Back. And when I listened to that part of the conversation that I had with with my reading partner, who's Taiwanese American. Um, and I, there was, there was a part of the conversation that I was like, oh shoot, I'm still less evolved than I thought I was. And sometimes you don't know until you have to listen to yourself. But there was this one part where I was describing a conversation, um, that I heard where a person I know was like just adamant denying that she was a racist, kind Mm -hmm. of like what you just described, like, I am not a racist, really angry. But then I said something like, and they were totally racist. And I I called this person racist. And Jen, who has experienced a lot of really, really hurtful racial discrimination in her life. Um, but she was, I, I heard this conversation now like as a listener. And Jen was totally trying to like very gently steer me toward more nuance. And, and <laughs> she was saying like, so you mean she was behaving in a racist way because Amy, I have also behaved in racist ways. And I could hear mm-hmm. that she was kind of trying to gently steer me toward that. Um, as I And I just didn't even pick it up during the conversation. I was still labeling someone else as a quote unquote racist as if I myself hadn't absorbed racism, right? And so I, w- I was kind of surprised to hear that kind of blunt and clumsy language come out of my own mouth. Um, but just like we talked about Abby Wambach saying like, I absorbed homophobia because everybody does. So I agree with you, Lane, that I think we need to all own it and, and, and acknowledge that we all absorb this poison of racism because everyone does. It's like a sickness. And if we can correctly diagnose the sickness, then that's the first step toward effectively treating it and saying like, yes, I have this, this sickness. Um, what do I do about it? But if we keep saying, oh, I didn't get that. I didn't breathe in the germs. Like, then we can't go about the process of getting medicine and flushing it out of ourselves, right? Because we're in denial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And yeah, you're right. It's easy to think of racist as the term racist is like, you're a bad person. And a lot of racists, you know, white supremacists are bad people. I would, I feel like I, for me, that's pretty unequivocal, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) white supremacists, Mm -hmm. not okay. But the fact is we have all absorbed white supremacist ideas and we would never use them to hurt a person of color, but it doesn't mean that we don't then tacitly support systems and policies that can be racist or perform, you know, microaggressions all the time. And the Mm -hmm. only way to fix that is to really start to learn, or as she says, detox and become aware of that and do better. Right. Right. Even if they're accidental, because like you said, like for people 
like me, they, of course they're yes. accidental. I would never do that on purpose. But if I use that as a defense me- mechanism to say, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I, I would never do that instead <laughs> of like, never. oh my gosh, did I accidentally do that? Thank you for telling me so right. that I don't yes. do that again. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, one more part of the book, Glennon Doyle has two girls and one boy. And she talks about how you know, later in life, she kind of retrospectively went back and was like, okay, I wasn't, I wasn't really prepared for this, you know, patriarchy that I encountered, but I want to prepare my daughters to live in a patriarchy. And she says, quote, I did not have an alternative narrative as a child. So when the world told me that a real girl is small, quiet, pretty, accommodating, and pleasant, I believed that this was the truth, like truth with a capital T. I breathed in those lies and they made me very sick. Children are either taught by the adults in their lives to see cages and resist them, or they are trained by our culture to surrender to them. Girls born into a patriarchal society become either shrewd or sick. It's one or the other. But then she talks about, so so she talks about how, okay, like I woke up, I prepared to teach my girls better than I was taught, but... She wasn't really thinking about how patriarchy would impact her son. So she mm-hmm. she then is watching the news one day and she saw that on the news there was a school shooter saying that he killed three classmates, one of whom was a girl who rejected his advances. And that was like one of the reasons that he committed this horrible violence. And then like in the same TV watching session, she sees members of a lacrosse team who are charged with gang rape. And she sees a college boy who's killed in a hazing accident. And she sees a middle school um, gay boy who committed suicide because of bullying and a war veteran who committed suicide due to PTSD. She's seeing all of these things happen in the news in a very short time. She says, I stared open-mouthed at the TV and thought, this is what it looks like for boys to try to comply with our culture's directions. They are not allowed to be whole either. Boys are in cages too. Boys who believe that real men are all powerful will cheat and lie and steal to claim and keep power. Boys who believe that girls exist to validate them will take a woman's rejection as a personal affront to their masculinity. Boys who believe that open, vulnerable connection between men is shameful will violently hate gay boys. Boys who believe that men don't cry will become men who rage. Boys who learn that pain is weakness will die before they will ask for help. When we say girls are nurturing and boys are ambitious... Girls are soft and boys are tough. Girls are emotional and boys are stoic. We are not telling truths. We are sharing beliefs, beliefs that have become mandates. If these statements seem true, it's because everyone has been so well programmed. Human qualities are not gendered. What is gendered is permission to express certain traits. Why? Why would our culture prescribe such strict gender roles? And why would it be so important for our culture to label all tenderness and mercy as feminine? Because disallowing the expression of these qualities is the way the status quo keeps its power. In a culture as imbalanced as ours, in which a few hoard billions while others starve, in which wars are fought for oil, in which children are shot and killed while gun manufacturers and politicians collect the blood money, Mercy, humanity, and vulnerability cannot be tolerated. 
mercy and empathy are great threats to an unjust society. So how does power squash the expression of these traits? In a misogynistic culture, all that is needed is to label them feminine. Mm. Then we can forever discount them in women and forever shame them out of men. Ta-da! No more messy, world-changing tenderness to deal with. We can continue on without our shared humanity challenging the status quo in any way. So I thought that was full of really brilliant insight, um, really succinctly expressed. And she then talks about giving her son an alternate script, just like she had done for her girls. Like, here's how to, you know, mitigate the patriarchy for you girls. But she hadn't done that for her son. And, And she says you know, that she started telling him uh, among all of the options that she thinks to mention about what he can be in his life, she starts mentioning, oh, you could be a poet or you could be a teacher, you a devoted father and telling him he can still be sensitive and still be a boy. And she says, I want my son to keep his humanity. I want him to stay whole. I do not want him to become sick. I want him to be shrewd. I do not want him to surrender to cages he must slowly die inside or kill his way out of. I do not want him to become another unconscious brick that power uses to build fortresses around itself. I want him to know the true story, which is that he is free to be fully human forever. And that's the end of that quote. And I think I'm just going to let it stand there. I thought it was so powerful and beautiful. And like you said, Lane, I'm glad that you picked that up from listening to the episodes because that's been one of the points that I really wanted to emphasize across the whole project, which is that patriarchy does harm everyone and that dismantling it will benefit everyone. So I'll leave it at that. But as we wrap up, Lane, is there a takeaway that you wanted to talk about from the book? I mean... I feel like the main takeaway for me at least was know yourself, figure out who you are, live with your own integrity, and then be brave enough to not do things that damage yourself and damage other people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like the whole thing is kind of an eloquent and insightful, be true to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Wow. That was such a great conversation, Lane. I am so grateful that you joined me today, that we read the book together, that we've reconnected. And I just loved everything you had to say today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Amy. Me too. It was a delight. I really liked the book and it was really fun to get to talk to you about it. And thank you so much to listeners for being with us today. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing the book Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World by Eleanor Cleghorn. It's a really long book, but I could not put it down. It's a fantastic book about misogyny in medicine. It was published really recently in 2021. And it's really a perfect book to end our timeline because Cleghorn takes us back to the medical practices and beliefs in the ancient world all the way through to the present day. And so in a way, it's a review of the ground that we've covered in our podcast, but through the lens of medicine. So really, really fascinating and important book. So join us next time for the discussion of Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Wade World by Eleanor Cleghorn, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.